The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Scott here. We had a little bit of a recording error last week, and so the first few minutes of the sermon audio were cut off. We did get most of it, um, but I wanted to come in here and record a quick uh, recap of the parts that you would miss if we had just left it as is. So we began by talking about the uh, tension that seems to be on the rise between people of faith and people of science, and uh, we talked about how there's uh, been a new series of books written on both sides of the debate, and that the rhetoric seems to be ratcheted up pretty significantly, and, and um, wondered about uh, what we as people of faith and the people of Artisan Church could do in the midst of this tension. How do we strike a balance between defending our faith, which we might call apologetics, and engaging other people with the life-changing message of our faith, what we might call evangelism? And uh, I followed that up with a brief recap of last week's sermon, which I won't do here because I know you've already downloaded it, and if you haven't, you can pretty easily. And the next thing that I talked about was what are our purposes and priorities as Christians, as people of faith, especially when it comes to interacting with people who don't share our faith. And that's where the audio picks up. So the next thing you'll hear is audio live from last Sunday's message. I hope you enjoy it. What, are, what, what purposes, you might call them goals, do we have as people of faith when we are talking to people who don't share our faith? Well, let me throw out a couple, and you can nod if you like them or mm, if you don't. Um, one goal might be we want to help other people believe in Jesus. That'd be a pretty big goal for people of faith. Is that right? Most of us, most of us like that idea. <laughs> Another one might be to help them understand the Bible, right? That'd be a, a pretty good purpose or a goal. One might be to help them believe that God created the world in a particular way. We, we touched on this a little bit last week. Do we want to make people believe a particular interpretation of the Bible? Those parts specifically. I'm, I'm seeing the, uh, <laughs> I'm seeing both uh, both axes here uh, with with heads. One going this way, one. Uh. Another goal that you might have, and and you might need to. Uh, I had to this week in preparing this list. Be honest with myself, and you might want to be honest with yourself. Do you ever have the goal of uh, winning an argument? Anybody like to win an argument? Right. I love to win arguments. <laughs> uh, that's why I'm on Twitter. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love to win arguments so much that I will sometimes create arguments that didn't exist before just so that I can win them. Tracy's not here this morning, but she would be nodding her head <laughs> if, <laughs> if she were. 
Well, so these are some of the, the purposes that you might have as a person of faith. If you want to accomplish purposes, if you want to meet goals, you know, we don't need to talk too corporate-like about goal setting, but we, if we have a goal of, say, helping somebody believe in Jesus, you have to align your uh, purposes and goals with priorities in life. This is something that I talk about with folks when I'm doing premarital counseling for them. Those of you who've done premarital counseling with me will recognize what I'm about to say. That we need to force, or we need to put ourselves in a position where our values or our purposes in life dictate our actions and our circumstances and where we end up, right? Because a lot of times it happens the other way around, doesn't it? When I'm talking with people who are about to start a life together, this often goes to the question of employment and money and houses and that kind of thing. But if you, uh, you know, if I'm counseling a married couple who, where, where one parent wants to have children and to stay home, then that's a value. Uh, it's not one that I think everybody has to follow, but many people want to. And if you, if you want to, you need to arrange your circumstances to be subservient to that value. Because if you go out and buy a big house with a $2,500 mortgage that needs two incomes to support it, you have just put yourself in a circumstance that's going to dictate the value or the purpose that you have in life. And you need to start at the other end of the equation. Because life is, uh, it's a little bit like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Anybody read these books growing up, Choose Your Own Adventure? <clears throat> right? You can either follow the witch into the cellar of the castle, or you can go up to the tower and save your chemistry teacher. Right? But you can't do both of those because for the first one, you have to turn to page 135. For the second one, you have to turn to page 148. Nobody read the story of the witch and the chemistry teacher? <laughs> If you're like me, when you were reading these books, I had uh, uh, five fingers on my right hand, as most of us do, and I think by the, <laughs> by the end of the time, I had my finger in every little if-then scenario <laughs> in the Choose Your Own Adventure book, because I really hate closing off possibilities. <laughs> I always want everything to be open, but that's not the way life works. It's not the way life works when you're just making decisions about family and money and jobs and houses, and it's not the way life works when you're trying to interact with people who have different ideas than you. There's a similar problem. When you, when you engage somebody who doesn't agree with you, you set a tone and a direction for how that interaction is going to go. And that direction, if not irreversible, might be pretty hard to change once it's going, right? Avla has her uh, really cool knitting shirt on, so I'll make a knitting example. Avla, I don't mean to embarrass you, except that I kind of do. Um, <laughs> if I want, this is a silly example, if I want to convince Avla of something, but I also think that God hates people who knit, <laughs> I, <laughs> as an example, I probably need to keep the God hates knitters placard in my back pocket. <laughs> if I want to have an, a meaningful dialogue with Avila, right? If you want to help somebody 
believe in Jesus? Who doesn't? You might not want to lead with the, well, you have to believe that God created the world 6,000 years ago and it only took six days, and then he put these dinosaur fossils in there to fool us argument, okay? You know, I promised myself I wasn't going to do that. Um, because that's not helpful either. I'm, I'm demonstrating exactly not how to talk to somebody who disagrees with me. Um, the point is, that particular question is of some importance. I hope that most of you in the room will agree with me when I say the question about Jesus is of utmost importance. And if you set the tone with the first one, you may never get to the second one. And that would be a shame, to say the least. I read a book last year by Greg Boyd. Um, he's an interesting guy. Greg Boyd was an atheist who converted to Christianity and became a pastor. He's now a, a pastor of a very large church in the Midwest. And one of the books that he read is called Letters to a Skeptic, in which he recorded a, a correspondence that he had with his father, who was also an atheist. Greg Boyd converted to Christianity, and his father was still an atheist, or at least a very skeptical agnostic. And so Greg Boyd wanted to help his father believe in Jesus, and he began to write these letters to him. And his father would write back, and they had this great dialogue that went on for couple hundred pages. At one point, his father raised a question that almost everybody who objects to Christianity or is not quite sure they want to believe it will raise, which is the question of, of hell and eternal punishment. And his father said what many of us have said on our way to faith, how could God create people whom he loves and want the best for them and then cast them into torturous fire for all eternity? And Greg Boyd's response was pretty interesting. He didn't pretend that this wasn't a problem. He didn't say, well, you just have to get over it. What he said was, you know, there are some people who believe that's what's true about hell. There are others who believe something a little bit simpler, which is just that if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going you're gonna to be gone. You're going to be disappeared after you die. Now, theologically, this is, this is called annihilationism, and we're not going to get into that question. I use this example to illustrate the point. What he said to his father was, if that's easier for you to believe, if that helps you not be hung up on something so that you can get to this other question which you've already said is really eating at you, which is the question of whether I should put my faith and trust in Jesus, if that helps you get to that point, that's okay. That is not one of the central things you have to worry about just yet. That is really interesting. And so when we're talking to people about our faith, it might be good to follow Greg Boyd's example and say, you know what? I know this question is of great interest to you. Different people who are intelligent and well-meaning disagree on it. That's not the central issue that you need to deal with right now. And that 
That may be frustrating to the person you're talking to for some other reasons, but it does dispel the culture war just a little bit. It's almost like having a truce. And I actually think that in some ways that's a... um, pretty well in line with how Jesus operated, too. You may remember that Jesus took a lot of flack from the religious establishment of His day for not following the letter of the law just exactly as they thought it should be followed. There's a number of examples, but one of them is the, the Sabbath, which the Jews celebrate as a day of rest, and, and we ought to celebrate the Sabbath uh, as a day of rest as well. You ought to have that built into your life. But Jesus healed people who were lame or sick on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees said, this is, you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. And, and he would walk through the fields of grain with his disciples on the Sabbath, and they would pick heads of grain. And that was, according to the interpretation of the law, that was deemed harvesting, which you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. And so he took a lot of flack about that. The Jews were also not supposed to have contact with people who were unclean, lepers or any number of other ways you could become unclean. And Jesus interacted with these people and took a lot of flack for it. And then when someone came to him and said, what is the greatest commandment? He said that the greatest commandment is the first one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he said something very interesting. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. <laughs> so if you can get these principles down, the other stuff will flow from it. We call that the great commandment, and, and Jesus is also known among believers for giving the great commission, saying, go into the nations and, and baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and make disciples. The Great Commandment and the Great Commission would be what I call purpose in life. And if you're going to set up goals, you you need to prioritize them in a way that accomplishes that kind of purpose. We as a church have a, a purpose, a goal. You've heard us talk about it before. If you're new here and have visited the website, you've probably seen it, but we have a mission statement says we want to encounter God, embrace people, and engage culture in the way of Jesus. And I think this particular question of creation and science offers lots of different ways we might embrace people and engage culture. But when I say we want to do it in the way of Jesus, what I'm talking about is by following those purposes and priorities that he set out. So as you can see, from what I said last week and what I've said this morning so far, I would really like us to be a place where we do not engage in cultural war-making. I said something similar in the previous series too, actually, as we finished up that Jeremiah text. I'd like us to be a place where we do encounter God, and part of that is looking at the creation stories and the, 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 the universe and, and pondering the big questions. 
But I also want us to be a place where we embrace people and engage culture in the way of Jesus. And I think that if we do that with respect to this question, we may end up being a lot better off. So, what I, would want to, what I wanted to do this morning, in addition to, to sharing that general concept with you, was give you a chance to ask some questions of me, and uh, I will respond to the questions. I can't promise that I will give you an answer, so this won't be a Q&A necessarily, but it'll be a Q&R, <laughs> question and response. Um, so if you have any questions about what I said last week, want to clarify something or challenge on something, or anything I've said this morning... I would like to give you a chance to ask those questions. And um, since we'll need to hear each other a little bit, uh, Jeremy, could I have you go to the, uh, the dial on the light switch at the back there? Just turn it one notch counterclockwise. That'll turn these fans down and make it a little bit quieter in here. Thank you. By the way, we don't run the fans to keep cool when the weather gets cool. We run the fans because heat rises and it pushes it down. So. Often I get asked that question, it's cold in here, can you turn the fans off? It actually makes it warmer when the fans are on. So if you have any questions about that, <laughs> I'd be happy to answer them as well. Faith in science, that's right. <laughs> that's physics or chemistry or something, I don't know. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, Ryan's question was, the talk last week was helpful in engaging with people who are not Christians, but what about, what about people who are Christians who are struggling with this issue? How do you engage them? And maybe particularly if they're saying, no, this actually is a matter of saving faith. That's a good question. On, the, on to the, the last part of what you said, if somebody comes to me and says, this is a matter of saving faith. Um, that's a tough place for me to start. Uh, you have to explain to me why you think that would be true. <laughs> um, and I, I think some of the same responses are fitting. Uh, responses about the nature of the literature and comparing it to, you know, like we did last week, uh, other stories of creation, and, and I think some of the same principles can apply for when we're talking with, with people who are already of faith. Um, unfortunately, we're, we're a little less prone to be gracious with each other than we are with people who are you know, outside our faith. And, and one, on one hand, that's nice. It's good that we want to be gracious with people who don't share our beliefs. Um, and that we want to do so in a, in a way that helps invite them to share our faith. But a lot of times, I think, when we argue so vociferously with each other, it's counterproductive to that 
other dynamic anyway. But yeah, I mean, the nice thing is when you're talking with somebody who does share faith, you can, you can go a little bit deeper and, and start with some assumptions about what the Bible is, and, you can, and, and you're speaking the same language in some ways that, that gives you at least a better starting point sometimes. It, but that all being said, it may be harder to engage somebody who's already of faith on this issue. Good question. Thank you. Other questions? Yeah, that's a very good question, Matt. Uh, the, the question of, of politics and religion and how sometimes in political debate religion is used as, as leverage in one direction or the other and, and how do we um, move beyond that is a, is a really important question for us. Um, I would say a few things. One is that the, the terminology matters. And in a, particularly in a political debate, you're, you're not really given an opportunity to be nuanced at all about definitions of words. But when someone says, do you believe in evolution? Uh, you know, when, when a questioner asks a political candidate, do you believe in evolution? That's obviously a trap question, first of all, <laughs> um, because there's no good, there's, you're losing entire blocks of voters either way. Um, but you could ask the question the opposite way, do you believe in creationism? This is an even worse problem. This, this makes me crazy that, that if you answer yes to the question, do you believe in creationism, 
the instant assumption is that you mean young earth, six-day, literal Genesis 1 creationism. And I, I'm, I think I've been fairly transparent that for me that would not be true. But I do believe in creationism. That is, I believe God made the world. And all those principles that we listed, I'm on board with those last, from last week. Um, but so, you know, the, the next step down is do you believe in evolution? And, you know, well, maybe I do, but maybe I don't think it's this, you know, kind of unmitigated process or something, you know, but you don't get a chance to, to, to define those terms in a debate. You just have to raise your hand and lose voters, which is really unhelpful. And so I think one of the things that we can do as people of faith is refuse to accept that process. You know, you can't, you can shout at your TV all you want. That's not going to do any good. But if we would refuse to accept the oversimplified categorization of political candidates, I think that we'd be better off. And it starts with being less partisan, to be perfectly frank. You've heard me say a couple of times in the last few, few months, I, I feel like I've said this a, a bunch lately, I'm not sure why it keeps coming up, um, but I'm going to keep saying it, that if you want to follow the teachings of Jesus, you are going to have to disagree with the teachings of whatever political party you are part of at some point. And I think that particularly in America, but this is a problem in Europe too, I'm sure, and, and certainly in Canada, you, <laughs> America's hat. There's a strong current in culture to assume that particular religious belief necessarily aligns you with a particular political party. And if we would do our best to reject that notion at every opportunity, I think that the debate might become a little bit more constructive. You know, but if you're just going to go in and say, I'm a Christian, so I've got to pull every red lever, you know, that's not going to help. And it's, that's only going to encourage the political machines <laughs> to continue to ask silly questions like that one, trap questions. And I, I say that because within evangelicalism, that's the stronger tendency. But there are churches out there who say, I'm a Christian, I've got to pull every blue lever, you know. And that's just as silly. It, you, it doesn't work that way. So the, the question of politics and faith becomes really challenging. Um, and I think whenever, if we, whenever possible, can actually engage in conversation and dialogue with people we are in relationship with, rather than just slapping a bumper sticker on our car and calling in a day, that would probably be helpful to the culture at large and, to the, and frankly, to the co- central causes of our faith. So. Nancy. Okay, it's a good question. I'm going to repeat it because it's, even though I think everybody here heard you, there's a recording, so I'm trying to make sure that people can understand the questions. How do I defend my position that the principles matter and the details don't always matter to somebody who says, well, I, the Bible is literal and it's God-breathed and there's, you can't just pick and choose? Um, it's a similar question to what Ryan asked, I think, where 
where there are people who are probably, um, uh, let me say this in a way that's not just pejorative. <laughs> well, because I think we need to say things in ways that aren't pejorative. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there are people who have a different hermeneutic than I do. I'm going to go all seminary on you there. <laughs> people who have a different uh, method of interpreting the Bible than, than, than mine. You know? And here in Protestantism, we, we have made our bed and we have to lie in it. We all get our own hermeneutic, <laughs> right? Which I think is fine. Priesthood of all believers, I'm on board with all that stuff. It sometimes would be easier if the bishop would just tell you what to think. But... <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, he already gets sectarian religious humor. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what I can't do is, is be completely dismissive of somebody like that and say, well, you're just a simpleton and I, don't, I can't engage with you. The best thing that I can do is say, I know that you look at that that way. And I, I, let me try to understand where you're coming from. I grew up in a place where every, almost everybody looked at it that way too. So I, it's not as though that's strange to me. Um, but the best thing I can do is, is be loving and gracious and explain as nicely and clear, clearly and politely and not, again, not be pejorative and rude and dismissive as I can, uh, why I come down a little differently on this or that interpretive question. Um, you know, because I, for me personally, I probably am in, enough in the middle on this that even in this room, there's people who go, oh, man, how could you not believe in a literal six-day creation? That's what the Bible says. And there's probably other people in the room who say, honestly, you believe that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. That's literal? And I say, yes. <laughs> and so... I guess I'm, I'll probably catch it from both sides, but that, I, I think living in the middle there is, is what we have to do sometimes. Um, incidentally, on those, those two particular issues, the, my answer to how I can hold both of those things that way is that there are different categories of literature. But to me, the Gospels are very clearly meant to, to be histories. The early parts of the book of Genesis are clearly not meant to be histories. Um, and so if somebody has real difficulty with, with that tension, all I can do is continue to talk with them, you know. Or I could just put like this really simple Facebook status up and let, let the people comment on it and <laughs> get really angry at each other. <clears throat> Rita. Yeah. So Rita's asking the question, where does that um, very conservative 
view of the Bible come from? Well, and, and you also said, you both actually said something interesting that I, I need to respond to, which is you've talked about the idea that God, that the Bible is God-breathed and that it's inspired and that it's literally true and all this stuff. Well, I actually, even, even in the places where I think it's not literally true, I think it's God-breathed and inspired. So that's one important thing to remember, that I don't, I'm not denigrating the Bible at all. I mean, some people are going to think that I am, but I can't really help that. I think the Bible is the best rule of, and guide for life that we have available to us as Christians. I think it's true, right? Capital T. Even in the places when it's not literal. And so that's another one of those kind of middle ground positions that I think really we ought to all stake out. Um, but it's interesting you raised the question of where this comes from, and uh, on the particular question of science and faith, there's some interesting history there. We all, most of us know the story of, of Galileo, who was excommunicated by the church. Um, this is uh, 16th century, I believe. Um, for, we've all been led to believe, this is just a simple question of he said that the, the uh, Earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. And, well, the book of Joshua says that the sun stood still, so that's not possible. So get out. Except that a couple hundred years earlier, Copernicus, who was a priest, as all the early scientists were in the Enlightenment, had said basically the same scientific thing and was not cast out of the church because the church said, you know, as long as you're not teaching the Bible in your scientific work, then it's okay. And the church actually endorsed science for centuries. When things got sticky was actually during the Protestant Reformation. It was the Protestants who began to say, no, you must, be, you must believe this as literal fact or history or science or however you want to categorize that particular perspective. Uh, which is bad enough, but then the Catholic Church reacted to that. And so, as with many, many issues during the Protestant Reformation, the middle ground was neglected because they were pushing each other so hard that they, they made more space between them. Um, and science and faith was one of those questions. So. A similar thing happened in, uh, in America in the early 20th century. Evangelicalism had been for decades working for social action in all kinds of areas of life, uh, women's suffrage, uh, abolition of slavery, a number of other issues. And evangelicals were at the forefront of that movement. And now evangelical is like a swear word. Uh, but in the early part of the 20th century, there was a divide among people who would be described as evangelicals, and some of them became fundamentalists. And so for most of the 20th century, Evangelicalism and fundamentalism were not the same thing. In fact, they had separated from each other over questions of whether, you know, whether we need to care about social issues. That was one of the dividing questions because the fundamentalist side said, well, Jesus is going to come back and whisk us all away, so we don't need to worry about that stuff. And evangelicals said, well, that's not really how the, I think the world's going to end, but either way, we need to worry about that stuff. And so you had this divide. Anyway, now we're at a place where evangelicalism is being co-opted somewhat by fundamentalism uh, in America, and it, it goes to the political question that Matt was raising and a 
a number of other dynamics, but um, that's a, my long-winded answer I, I could distill down into the following. When we allow political commitment, whether it's political science or just um, the tendency to want to gather around ideas and hold them as the most important thing in the world, when we allow political commitments to override religious ones, that's when we run into trouble. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's John, right? Yeah, John has raised some, some very good questions. Um, among them are... Uh, where do we draw the line with questions to, when, when, we're, when we have to engage with scientific reality, if we're going to accept that, that perhaps we don't have to be as literal with the Bible, that still doesn't answer the question of where, where are our origins when, as, as a species, scientifically. And how do you reconcile some of the New Testament stuff that refers back to those creation, whether it's Adam and Eve or whether it's genealogies or that kind of thing. Um, and... I could add some questions to that list. Uh, you mentioned how does, if we believe in evolution, then how does morality evolve? Um, that's a really interesting question to talk about. Um, another one might be, if we if we believe we believe that God used evolution to create, which is one of the positions that might be present in this room. How do we how do we square the fact that that God is using a process that relies so much on self-centeredness, violence, and death <laughs> to advance the, the cause of creation? Now, those, are, those are challenging questions. Um, <laughs> and I'm already a few minutes over time here. so um, <clears throat> I think the, this, this may sound a little pat, but the first step is actually admitting that they're there, raising the questions, as you've just done and I've just done and getting to the point where we can say, these are things we have to discuss and figure out. Um, a lot of times we might want to do the ostrich thing and hide our head in the sand and not, not address those difficult questions. Uh, which is going to seem like what I'm doing right now because I really can't, <laughs> I, I can't give you answers to all the things you raised or the ones that I raised in the time that we have. I just simply can't. Um, but we, we do need to have those conversations. Part of what I, I mean, the, the bigger thing of what I wanted to do, because I'm, I'm not a scientist either, 
is get us all as a community to a place where, where we are willing to have those discussions, where we can put those things on the table without saying, I don't know if I want to ask this question because maybe everybody else in the room does believe in literal six-day young earth creationism, and if I say this, I'm going to be cast out of here. Um, Again, let me stress that I don't want this to be a place where people can say, where people think they can't say, I believe in a literal six-day young earth creationism or I'm going to be cast out of here. I would like this to be a place where we can have those conversations intellectually and, and um, without some of the emotional charge that's present there. The specific one about uh, comparing Jesus to Adam in Romans and elsewhere. I, th- I don't... I don't think that that is, that comparison, theologically speaking, requires uh, a literal Adam and Eve interpretation of Genesis chapter 2 in order to be valid. No. That's a very, very short answer with no explanation of why I gave it. <laughs> I'm really sorry, but we have time for one more question, um, and you know, this is the kind of thing that maybe we could do a a Bible study on or a group study on sometime if people would like to talk more about this. But, yeah, Matt. That's a great point, and it's a, it's a great way to wrap up our question and response time. Uh, um, Matt um, said that he has friends who are not believers who, who make the assumption that Christianity, religion as a whole, but Christianity particularly, is a monoculture. In other words, there's no difference of opinion anywhere. And you, he just listed several, several ways in which we at, uh, here at Artisan are not a monoculture. And I think that actually no church really is. Um, I am proud of the fact that we probably have a wider spectrum uh, with more representation of different views than the average church in America, but I think it's not quite fair to say that every other church doesn't get it the way we do. <laughs> I mean, even though that, you know, we're pretty cool and all that. But <laughs> Well, as we wrap up today, I want to speak to two groups of people in the room. The first group of people is people who are believers. And I want to say to you that you, your faith is what saves you, but your faith cannot be a replacement for critical thinking. That once in a while, you're going to need to pull that trump card out and say, I'm not sure what's going on here. I have faith. But it's a trump card, not a whole deck. People who don't want to let you have that trump card at all really don't want to let you have that trump card every single day on every single question. And so you must, must practice critical thinking 
and engage ideas intellectually and on the terms in which they're presented by people who don't share your opinions. I also want to speak to the group of people in the room who are skeptics and uh, agnostics and atheists. Matt mentioned that we have some of those folks in the room pretty much every week, and so uh, I like that about us. But you don't get to deal with a straw man God. Are you familiar with the straw man concept? Where in a debate, somebody will say, will set up the opposing view in a way that's actually not accurate so that it's easier to knock it down. You don't get to look at that caricature of the most simpleton, backwoods, straw in the lips Christian and reject that as if that were the gospel. The gospel that you are rejecting is not the same thing as that straw man. And if you're in that second group, we love having you here, but we, we also like to, we need to tell you that that's, you still have to deal with the fact that, that you're a sinner in need of grace, that you have participated in the mayhem that you see around you, and that you make it worse, just as we all do. And you've got to find a way to remedy that. And you're going to look for ways to remedy that on your own, and you're not going to find that they work. And you're just going to make things worse and worse and worse. And so the reason that we are gathered here together is to celebrate the solution to that problem, to worship a God who became flesh and blood, the physical properties of the human race that he created. He entered the scientific reality that he had made in the person of Jesus. And there is great power in the teachings of Jesus and in following them. There is even greater power in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that is the power that we cling to and embrace when we come to worship him. And it's the power that we celebrate at the Lord's table. And so, I'd like to invite anyone who would seek to follow him to participate in communion together this morning. We're going to keep worshiping in song in just a minute. Um, but if you'd like to engage with that Christ, engage with God made human, uh, this is the way that we do this. You can go to the table and tear off a piece of bread, remember his body broken for you, Dip it in the wine or the juice, whatever is more appropriate for you and your family. Remember his bloodshed for you. Take it as food for your souls. And uh, if, if you are a parent who has a child in the classroom, it's okay to take communion before you go get them. It's also okay to go get them and take communion together with them. Um, either way, don't linger too long because we'd like to have our teachers be able to come back and take communion and participate in worship as well. Um, let's pray. God, we give you thanks for meeting us in the midst of the tension that we find in our world. 
And we pray that you would give us grace to interact with each other in a way that is helpful and meaningful, but that does not compromise the truth of your word. Help us to live in that tension and explore it more with each passing day as we grow closer to you and to each other. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.